Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. As you know, that as part of our case discussion disclaimer, we always say the case you're about to hear is HIPAA compliant. Some details were changed to protect privacy, but out of respect to the patient, the rest was told exactly as it occurred. Truth is, we are very deliberate about using real cases to highlight disease processes because when it comes to cardiology, the details really matter and fabricating a case from scratch wouldn't be nearly impossible and would likely sound inauthentic to the discerning listener. From the very first discussion that we had about our show structure, we knew we really needed to have a patient perspective on the show. By now, you have hopefully heard episode 31, our myocarditis case discussion, which revolved around a very special patient and his family who you met at the tail end of episode 31 during the flutter segment. Well, folks, we are bringing back Chaz and his wife, Julie, who have been so gracious with their time and have agreed to come on the show and give us a glimpse into the world of the good times and the tough and ugly times they have experienced. Chaz, Julie, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having thank you, Dan, us. For having us. Uh, why don't you go and start off by introducing yourselves? Sure. My name's Chaz Miller. I was 37 years old at the time that I was uh, admitted into the hospital at Johns Hopkins, and I am in medical sales currently. Um, and I'm Julie Miller. I am Chaz's wife of a little over seven years, and I am part-time stay-at-home mom, and part-time I work as an independent contractor for a local nonprofit doing arts work with the special needs community. And I also have a family photography business. How do you guys usually tell your story when you're like sitting around drinking beers and talking to friends? So Chaz, should I start with a, with going, cause didn't it, didn't you start getting the headache on that Monday night? Wasn't that? Yeah, it was the Monday night Columbus, Columbus day. day, right? Yeah. It was Columbus day. Yeah. Okay. So we went to Columbus the OB day. appointment and then, okay. Yeah. So I, so I took the day off on that Monday um, I believe it was the 9th of October. It was that Columbus Day. I had taken the day off of work just so I could go to Julie's OB appointment with her that day and uh, be with the kids. So we took we took the kids to the mall, let them get their yayas out, came home and just relaxed for the rest of the day. And then that night I started getting like a little headache. And I thought it was a migraine, you know, because I get them every now and then and went to bed. Um, and I was a little restless that night. I couldn't get comfortable. I was hot. I was cold. I was hot. I was cold. Um, having weird dreams. Like I really wasn't getting into that deep sleep. Um, and the next morning I woke up and went to work and throughout that entire day, I kind of felt like I was walking around with a hangover, like a slight hangover, like a little dizzy at times, a little nauseous, like a little headache. And I was working in the Silver Spring, Maryland that day. Um, I was in dental sales at that point with that, at that time. So I was, you know, seeing some of my accounts in the Silver Spring area and I stopped it. I was like, well, maybe I'm just hungry. You know, I didn't have breakfast. Maybe I'm hungry. So I went and got some food, um, ate lunch, and still, like, it still didn't, like, fix it. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to call it the day. It was like 2, two o'clock at that point. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to call it the day and come home. And I text Julie. and said, I'm coming home. Uh, I don't feel good. And I went and laid down for the rest of the day. And then that night, she had gone out and did something on that Tuesday night. I was mm-hmm. working with the nonprofit I work with. We were, you know, getting ready to, like kick off this amazing like 
season of creating theater and we were excited. And I was like, oh man, like there's like, how's, how's the baby? How's Chaz? And I was like, well, the baby's still cooking for a couple more months. We have a plan for that. And Chaz is home and he's sick, but he'll, you know, he'll be all right. And then, you know, everybody made jokes about the man flu. And I was like, no, he's usually pretty okay. But like when he's sick, he takes care of himself. So when he really doesn't feel good, I believe him because he doesn't exaggerate. And by the time I got home, he really felt sick. No, I just had a fever at that point. And then I started throwing up maybe like a couple hours later. Uh, Cause I remember you being home when I was, when I had gone through the whole like vomiting stage and the shivers on the, on the bathroom floor and stuff like that. And we thought it might um, be a stomach flu. Yeah. Um, I thought it was, yeah, it felt like a stomach flu. Like at that point, you know, that my point. pregnant self was like, okay, so if you have something contagious, I can't get that. I need <laughs> to, not, I need to not get that. Cause you know, as a pregnant woman, I had enough issues as it was. So I uh, just, I was like, you know what, you take the bed, I'll sleep on the couch, like, and I'll take care of Aurora, our, you know, then three year old. And I was just, you know, the next day, he didn't go to work. And I was just trying to trying to keep her better. And by that next afternoon, he well, felt a lot better. Yeah. And then and then a couple hours later, I started feeling bad. This was on Wednesday. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go to urgent care and see what's going on. So I go to urgent care. Um, they do the, you know, influenza swab. They do all the things that they need to do. And they're like, can't find anything wrong with you. Everything's coming back negative. Um, your your blood counts are fine. Like, you just don't see anything with, you know, wrong. But, you know, go on home and rest. Keep doing what you're doing. If you have any changes of symptoms, and that's what stood out to me. It's like, if you have any changes of symptoms, reach out to your physician or go to the emergency room. Well, I, don't, I never had a physician because I was always healthy. I never needed to go to a doctor, right? So that next day, I'm laying on the couch, just sedentary, talking to an account on the phone that I've been talking to the whole, the whole week. And I was like, man, I still don't feel good. And at this point, I started to feel like heart palpitations. They didn't hurt. It just felt weird. And I was like, this is odd. And Julie was napping. And I was on the phone and my, my account's like, dude, you might want to like take it to the hospital, like call it in. Like, this is going on too long. And I was like, I think you're right. So I go and wake Julie up. And I said, hey, I'm having a change of symptoms. Like, I think we should go to the emergency room. And she's like, okay. So we pack up the three-year-old, put her in the car. I pack up the dog. We drive the 10 minutes in the wrong direction. Go, I get the dog out. I drop him off at daycare. When I came out, like Chaz was in the car when I went in to take the dog. And when I came out, Chaz was out of the car. Our daughter was still in the car. And he was just kind of walking around, just breathing heavily. And I was like, whoa. Oh, my God. Thank God you didn't let him drive alone. Uh, it gets worse. <laughs> So I don't know how, how you were feeling at that point, Chess. I was very nauseous. Like I felt like I needed to throw up and I couldn't. That's how it felt. Like I, I felt that like, you know, that, that metallic taste in your mouth, the nauseous feeling, the stomach hurting, the heart pounding. Like I felt it all. And I'm like, maybe I just need to get out of, that, out of, the, out of the car, get some fresh air. I went off to the side of the building to like see if I could maybe throw up. If I did, I was at least on the side of a building and, you know, not in front of the establishment. And then Julie came out and she's like, you feel all right? I'm like, no, we need to go. Yeah. And I remember is. getting into the car. I said, why are you taking the route where we're hitting every stoplight? And of course we hit every red light on the way to the, <laughs> and, and the of course there is. I'm getting, <laughs> and I'm getting worse and worse. And the, and the nauseous every time she stops and goes and stops and goes. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to throw up. 
So, and then at some point I just forgot what was going on. And this is when Julie's perspective kind of kicks in. Yeah. Well, from the time I walked out of doggy daycare, um, the boarding facility and he looked funny and I was like, are you okay? And he was like, no. Then it like the mentality stopped being, all right, well, we're probably going to be there for forever for them just to tell him, you know, he's fine, go home and rest. Right. Cause that's you like, usually when you end up going to the ER, like it's not as bad as you thought it was. And you were like, you sheepishly walk back out and maybe get a prescription. And then you're like, well, that was like eight hours of my life. I'll never get back. So I gone from thinking that to like, okay, we need to get there quickly. I look at my GPS and it says to not take the interstate because of the time of day. It's late afternoon. It's starting to be rush hour in the Washington DC, like Beltway can be pretty bad. The district traffic is bad. So I was like, okay, I'm going to trust the GPS and I'm going to go this way. And on the way, he's complaining about the driving and the stopping and going, but he's also breathing more heavily. And then he's like, I just, I need air. And he rolled his window down and I was like, all right, man. And I was, you know, I'd reach over and rub his leg every now and then. And I kind of let all like the insults about like, why didn't I take the (laughs) the interstate like go? I was like, all right, he clearly doesn't feel well. And this is just something he can focus on because this is something potentially we could do something about, get there faster. And he can't do anything about the way he's feeling. We get fairly close to Shady Grove, like within, I'd say a mile and a half. And I'm about to- Not even that close. But I got into a lane to turn left, like, and- so I'm just sit- I'm kind of sitting there waiting for the light to change because I'm going to turn on to this next road and that's the road that the hospital's on. And I kind of felt the energy in the car change. And I think what it was, because you know I was focused on the road and the light so that we could get going when it turned, I felt the energy change. And what it was is his breathing changed. There wasn't that hard gasping. So I looked over and his face was totally relaxed. It looked like he was sleeping but his face was completely slack and it didn't look like he, like it wasn't pinched. You know, when you're sick and your head hurts, like you kind of always have that pinched expression. And he had had that even when he was resting. So he looked completely relaxed, which was weird. So I went to check on him and I put my, I put my hand on his, on his arm to be like, Hey honey. And he complete. And as I touched him, like he completely slumped over, just completely slumped over in the car. Oh my gosh. His seatbelt didn't catch him because we were stopped at the light, so completely slack. At which point I started to lose my mind a little bit. I don't know if like, so for a second I was like, oh my God, I need to get him out of the car. Like I'm CPR certified because of my nonprofit work. So I was like, I'm gonna have to figure out how to put this in gear, run around the car, hope that somebody behind me sees cause I'm seven months pregnant and I gotta drag this dude out of the car and get him on a flat surface so I can start CPR. But then I was like, okay, one step at a time, let's make sure he's not breathing even though it doesn't sound like it. So I physically pushed him back up and I put my, like, to get his head up, I put my palm over his face and then I could feel the exhale through his nose and mouth onto my palm. And I was like, okay, we've got breath. I don't have to drag him out of the car. Great. So I called 911 because I'm still, we're, this is all the light still hasn't changed. I call 911 and the gentleman who answered his name was Don and he was wonderful. I remember a lot of these people's names, like, because they were so great. I had a mentalist in my head. I quickly told him what was happening. He was like, okay, well, do you want an ambulance? Do you want it there? I was like, I don't know what the right answer is, but I'm almost there. So I kind of think I should keep going, but I just want to make sure I'm making the right decisions. And he was like, I think you are. So here's what you're going to do. What you're going to do, you're going to pull in, you're going to ignore all the parking lots. You are going to pull in front of those ER doors. You are going to put the car in park. 
I always think that's funny that he was like, <laughs> he was like, remember to park the car. He was like, you're going to go in. Like you should see a security guard. You should see somebody who looks official and you're going to tell them that you need help and tell them what's happening and they will help you. And I was like, okay. And he kept me calm for the, you know, the remainder of the ride. And I did what he said. I pulled up. I remembered to park the car. There wasn't anybody standing outside. So I went into, you know, I'm waddling in really, right? Like all pregnant and stuff, like running in there. I look, there's a line for triage. And I was just like, that's not going to, I'm not standing in line. He's not conscious. Like he's not okay. So then I just started yelling in the middle of the lobby. I was like, I need help. I need help. Somebody, I need help. My husband's unconscious. I can't wake him up. And then all of a sudden I had so many helpers and it was amazing. So they did a great job too at Shady Grove. So all of a sudden I had 4,000 helpers. I didn't know that you could, somebody who'd passed out, you could do a, a, a rub on their sternum to kind of wake them up. That's a thing that I learned that day. So they were able to, you know, they opened it up. They were able to at least get him to the point where his eyes were open. And he was kind of communicating, but they were like, okay, can you walk and get on the stretcher? He, there was no way he couldn't, he could barely like keep his eyes open. It was bad. And they like hauled him, they got him out onto the stretcher and they put him on. And he looked at me and said, Jules, my chest hurts. And then he passed out again and then they wheeled him away. And I'm just standing there with this one amazing nurse who was, a, I think she was a travel nurse because I've never been able to find her. And I've been back to the hospital a bunch. Her name was Joy. And she stood with me because I was, you know, just standing there broken. And she was like, hey, I'm going to help you get your car parked and then help you get inside. Okay. Like, and I was like, okay, great. So she got in the passenger seat. She kind of directed me because I'm like, I don't know if I'm ever going to see him again. And things just went from totally normal to totally horrifying in no time. So she helped me park my car. Meanwhile, my, our daughter has slept through this entire thing. She slept through him passing out, me yelling at him in the front seat of the car, oh my um, gosh. me calling 911, me yelling, all the people coming and getting him out of the car. She's still completely asleep in the back. So oh Joy, help, Joy directs me. We park the car. She picks up my daughter, who then wakes up and carries her inside. So I don't have to. She gets me inside. She sits me down. She brings me a box of Kleenex. She goes, so look, you can't go back there to where he is right now. She's like, but I can. I cannot go into the room. I, like I cannot ask questions, but I can get to where I can see him and I can at least tell you if he's awake. And so then she goes and I call Chaz's parents. Um, his mom is kind of a famous warrior. Things go from zero to the world is ending very soon um, just because she cares so much. Um, so we hadn't normally, unless things are really serious, I wouldn't, but I was like, his mom has to know because I don't know if he's alive. I have to call his mom. So I called his mom I was like, I'm really sorry, but this is happening and I don't know what's going on and you need to know. So what you have to get Chuck, his dad, I was like, you have to get Chuck home from work and you have to come. And she was amazing because I thought she was going to fall apart. She was like, okay, all right, I'll get him. I, I'll let you know, like, please let me know. And then Joy came back out and she was like, okay, I don't know what's going on, but I can see that he's awake and he's answering questions. That is the best thing that we could hope for. And then she had to go and either do her job or go home. Like, I don't know, but she just like wanted to make sure that I had the information that was going to keep me going. And eventually they did take us back and he was able to answer questions and he looked so much better. So I'm like, okay, great. Whatever was happening, it's almost over now. Wrong. I do remember certain things. It's very, very vague in the room that they wheeled me to. Uh, all I remember is seeing lights and it seemed like a hundred people around me putting things on me, taking things off of me, injecting me with this and probing me with this. And 
I mean, it was just like, what is going on? And they're asking me questions faster than I can answer the first one and checking my fever. And, and then the next thing I know, Julie and Aurora are in there and then they leave. And then the next thing you know, I'm in a room waiting to find out what's going on. Remember somebody saying that they had put a call into shock drama and Hopkins because I had something that was going to get worse before it got better. They didn't have the resources there at the hospital. And Hopkins happened to be the first one to reach out and say, yep, we can we can get them, send them to our way. And they were actually going to life flight me that night, but it was a very foggy night. So they ended up having to ground transport me. So they, you know, from what I remember, it was like a, it usually takes like 45 minutes to an hour to get from Rockville to Baltimore. And it seemed like it was only like 30 minutes. So I don't know if they had the lights on and they were just passing everybody as fast as they could or what. The ride seemed a lot faster than it was if I was driving. The ambulance got there right as Chuck and Karen were pulling into the parking lot. Like the EMTs were great because I was like, can his parents have driven for three hours and they just got here? Can they just see him before we go? Because I, you know, he's really sick and, you know, they let him do that. And then we went in the ambulance, the entire ambulance ride. Chaz had me take notes. I don't know if you remember this, but he was like, okay, I need you to call this person and this person all from work, right? He's like, my clients need to know I can't make these meetings. You need to call my boss. I need you to change my out of office voicemail and my out of office email. And I was like, Wait, <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> oh, well, I still have the notebook somewhere because I was like, I'm sorry, what? Because that's something that you could focus on, I think, right? You were like, I can't control my body, but I sure as heck can control my sales territory. So like, <laughs> that's true dedication right there. I was I was like, I will take care of it because it made him feel better. And they took him in immediately. And uh, and I know the one thing he was not excited about is the, uh, yeah. the electrodes from Katie Grove were still attached to him. And, you know, Chaz is like a very manly man. Like, so he had some chest hair and they had to remove all of those, give him a free chest wax, essentially, mm, to yeah. put on the Hopkins yeah. electrodes. And he was real mad about that. And then he, <laughs> he seemed to be pretty, he was pretty okay for the rest of that night and all through the next afternoon. Unfortunately, his mom on Thursday night was so worried while we were there. It was maybe 1 a.m. She passed out in his room, in his ICU room. She had to be admitted in the, to the ER. So, oh my God. so then, um, and at that point, I think I yelled, I, I think I'm pretty sure I yelled. I was like, people have to stop passing out in front of me. It's like, <laughs> no, you said you Millers need you to stop. Millers need no to more to Millers me. passing out. Yeah, no more Millers passing out in front of me. And like, and my father and I looked at each other. I said, I got patient A, you got patient B. Nobody else goes down. <laughs> and so we split up and we just would text each other updates about the, our particular patient. Oh and then Chad, God. do you remember anything about that Friday? As soon as I was admitted on that Thursday, that late Thursday night, I remember getting stripped down, getting the electrodes taken off, their electrodes put on. And then everything from there, from the time that I went into my sur first surgery was a very foggy. Like, I don't remember what happened on what day, but I remember feeling all right, going through a bunch of tests. I remember them doing my A-line and that was the worst experience in my entire life because I was nauseous. And I don't know who was trying to do my A-line, but I think it was his first time ever working with a needle. Oh, and no. Felt like it was me. It was not me. It was not <laughs> you. And and there, I remember the attending constantly telling him like, hey, this is what you need to do. This is how you do it. And, and, and it felt like it was like three hours long and I was nauseous. And of course they put that the sheet over your head. So like now I'm breathing my own hot air, right? So now my, not, my, nause, my nausea is getting even worse. And I'm like, 
dude, how much longer is it going to be? And he kept on saying, oh, we're almost done. I was like, dude, you guys been saying that for the last like hour. You're almost <laughs> done. Like, come on. Can you please finish? But I don't remember what day that was. So I mean, I don't, the sequence of events is blurry to me from the time that I came into the hospital till Halloween. Like everything was blurry. I, I have recollect, recollections of some things, but I don't remember when it happened. Like what was the day? What was the date? I remember Dr. Dan showing me at one point on a screen, like this was your heart. Okay. Well, hey, like, you're jumping. Amen. You are jumping so and, far ahead. Am I? Say what I mean? Oh, yeah. Say, yeah. You're jumping. I don't remember. You're jumping to when you got better. You haven't even gotten that bad yet. Uh, okay. Still not on what I mean? yet. I'll just say just for the audience that Chaz had gone to Shady Grove and had a very elevated troponin, as we had talked about in the case discussion. So already there was a thought that myocarditis was on the differential, and that was one of the reasons why he came directly to the CCU um, at Johns Hopkins. And I actually met Chaz and Julie then, and I was witness to um, the passing out saga, and I remember this like it was yesterday. But I'll let you continue. But that's kind of how you ended up in the CCU. Yeah. That is how we ended up in the CCU. So his mom's now in the ER, but like, he's not better. He still feels ill, but it's nowhere near like it was before. He's tired. He's worn out. He still feels a little bit nauseated, but it, it's nowhere near the level. Now it's just like he doesn't feel well again. And, you know, so it seems like definitely much better than it was the day before. So, of course, those of us who do not work in this field and know how this story goes are thinking, okay, well, this is good. It's better. It gets to the point they decide like, okay, well, we'd like you to try to eat something. And that's when things started to get a little wonky. So he eats, he's able to FaceTime with uh, my stepdaughter who's 10 and is with her mom. And of course, I've been in contact with her mom because number one, her mom is lovely. Like Chaz's ex-wife is lovely and they do a lovely and inspirational job of co-parenting together that I think everybody should do, but that's a whole other story. Um, so I've been in contact with her, but you know, and Emily's worried. So I want Emily to be able to talk to Chaz. So I get the iPad out. He doesn't feel great, but he's like, yeah, I'm going to suck it up and talk to her for a minute. Like, and he does. And then he starts to feel more nauseous and more nauseous. And it gets really bad at around 8 PM. He starts to actively throw up like every 10, 15 minutes, he throws up. Sometimes it's even less than 10 minutes and it doesn't stop. It's this continuous throwing up. And then around midnight, 1230, like in every time that he's throwing up, I'm rushing over there. And his mom has been discharged from the ER at this point. But when he starts throwing up and getting bad, his dad knows that he can't just keep her there to watch because she's going to go down again. Like it's too stressful. So he leaves with her, which is the right decision. 100%. We want to keep the number of Millers down to a minimum. And I'm there alone, not alone because I've got the staff, which is great. But um, he he starts vomiting and he doesn't stop. So after four straight hours of vomiting, it's midnight and I call my mom and my sister who, you know, I've been kind of, you know, keeping in the loop, but it hasn't been serious. And I was like, I need somebody to, I need somebody like, this is not okay. He's not okay. And it's getting worse. And the nursing staff is amazing because every time he's vomiting, people are coming in there and I keep getting up. And eventually like round one or so in the morning, I go to get up yet again to, to help, uh, to help like soothe him when he's vomiting. Cause I know if I'm throwing up, like having, knowing that I'm not alone is helpful. Right. So I'm trying to be helpful. And like, I'm just exhausted because now I haven't really slept. Um, I'm super pregnant and Kelly, one of the nurses on the CCU that night comes over to me and she goes, look, 
We have got him. It does not do him any good if you make yourself sick too. You you stay sitting here or laying here and we have got him and I promise we'll let you know if he needs you, okay? And I was like, okay, which I really needed because I wasn't gonna stop, right? Like, because he's my guy. Like, I'm not gonna stop, but I needed to stop, right? It wasn't good, it wasn't healthy for me. I was exhausted. I needed to drink water. I needed to not be on my feet all the time. Like, I needed to also take care of our son, and myself too. And she's like, we have him. So, and honestly, he didn't even know that I was there anyway. So I would say encouraging things when I tried to rest. My name is Kelly Northworthy. I am a nurse on the CCU. And I remember Chaz and Julie Miller very well. Um, I took care of Chaz Miller um, many times, but the first time I met him was on my last night on orientation. So, you know, my last shift, uh, Alyssa and I walk in together. Alyssa and I is my preceptor that night. She's like, okay, Kelly, I really want you to take this assignment and run with it on your own tonight. You know, she's making sure that I can do this by myself because a day later I'm going to be on my own. So we get report on. Chaz Miller. I think he's been there maybe less than 12 hours. He's 30, 40 year old guy. He doesn't look great. They put a swan in that day. They think it might be something viral or cardiogenic shock maybe. Um, they're, they're unsure. He's not very sick at baseline. He's, you know, a healthy younger guy. He's got a family, but he doesn't look great. So you're not quite sure what to, you're going about to walk into, but Alyssa's like, okay, go ahead, go introduce yourself and um, let me know what you need. So I walk in I remember he's in bed 11. It's, you know, 7.45 when I go in and I just know automatically how bad the night is gonna look because Chaz looks awful. He's diaphoretic, he's pale, he's nervous, he's anxious, he feels crappy, he's restless in bed and that to a nurse is just like number one bad sign is when a patient looks restless, you know that like something's going on. So, not only was Chaz looking ill, but I look over and he's got this, you know, very anxious eight month pregnant wife on the couch. And I introduced myself to Julie and I said, hi, my name's Kelly. Um, uh, there's gonna be two nurses taking care of your husband tonight. It's me and Alyssa, cause I automatically know something isn't right with Chaz and we're gonna need to tag team this together. So Chaz had a really terrible night that evening. He got worse, he felt worse, he looked worse. All of his numbers looked off. We couldn't get his nausea under control. Nothing, no medicines were easing his anxiety. You know, he never slept. His wife didn't sleep. I think around like two in the morning, I walked over to Julie and she looked scared out of her mind. I hope she thought that I looked confident because I did not feel confident underneath it all. But that's part of our job is to go and not just take care of the patient, but to help ease the anxiety of the family and explain what we're seeing, explain what we're doing so that they can kind of understand what our thought process is. So I go over to Julie, you know, I kneel down in front of her, I hold her hands and I look at her and I look. I said, Julie, uh, we, we've got this. We are taking care of him. I know he doesn't look great. He doesn't look good to me either. You have to be honest, but you also want to help them feel a little bit better about the situations. You know, trying to give her some peace that like we are concerned, but able to take care of him as best as we can. Kind of overnight, you as nursing are trying to get them through the night so that you have your full team and resources the next day. And that come in and at 7 a.m., you know, we pull everyone into the room and we're like, look, something's going on with Chaz. He needs to go to the lab and get more support here, like a balloon pump or something. He needs 
we need to figure out what's going on. So taught me a lot that night. It didn't do anything for my confidence because I was supposed to be running that shift by myself. And I was literally bringing Alyssa in with me every time because I think even the most seasoned nurse could see that that wasn't a, a light assignment. That was someone who was very, very sick. And I think we all would have looked for help and support that night. Thank God I had a great charge nurse. Whitney was working, one of our best nurses at night overall in the unit. And then we had Alyssa who was, I'm so confident in her abilities. And thank God I had them. Thank God we have, we have an amazing team on the CCU. I don't think I could have done it without them, but it taught me a lot. I will never forget that night. I will never forget Chaz and Julie. And I, I took care of Chaz many other shifts after that. And I was by myself. Uh, I was off orientation. And they kind of were like, all right, ready to fly and he taught me a lot in those first three months about taking care of really ill sick patients that go up they go down they get better they get worse but you tend to see little you know little improvements over over weeks and eventually he got downgraded which was just unbelievable to me i think he was probably my the first patient that i saw that was close to dying and ended up getting better and going home and thank god he did he's a beautiful family and three young kids a beautiful wife and julie i just remember being being with you that night and being equally as scared and as anxious as you, but really trying to show you that we had it together and we were going to make it work together. So happy to have met you too. So happy that you're home with your families now and safe and healthy. And hopefully we'll see you back on the CCU, not in a patient capacity. I always say that, but to say hello and thank you for being awesome. All right. Bye. Thanks Kelly for being so open about your experience and giving us a tremendous glimpse at what goes on at the patient's bedside. It was just last week that you and I were working the COVID-19 unit with multiple patients on ECMO. You were just crushing it as charge nurse, leading a whole group of talented nurses to do some cutting edge work. And don't worry, we'll have the opportunity to hear from Alyssa a little bit later. Anyhow, back to Julie's story. I had a friend who in the middle of the night came and, and sat with me because it was terrible. So he kept vomiting all night long into the next day. My one friend who like came at the wee hours in the morning and then stayed with me all night, she left to go back and take care of her kids and another friend came and took her place. So I have I had all these people who coming like, and then people like would just put like food in my hands and be like, oh look, you have food in your hand. I guess you better eat, pregnant lady. And I was like, oh, that's nice, thanks. And then around noon is when the attending came in and was like, so this has gone from bad to worse. We're at the point where all the medications we're giving him are not helping him at all. We need to take more drastic measures now. And that's when they went over the life support devices that they were gonna put him on. They, they were gonna put him on you know, an external pacemaker and an Impella heart pump and ECMO. And of course, I didn't exactly know what all of these things were. So I had to get that explained to me and he went in and Chaz and I had a conversation before they took him back for his surgery. I chatted with the nurses and I was like, is this a situation where I should maybe check with him before he goes in to make sure I know what his wishes are in case things get really terrible. And they were like, oh you know, they were like, I'm not saying that it's going to go that way, but I don't think it's ever a bad idea to, to make sure you know, but I would make sure that you are the only two people in the room so that he doesn't feel pressure from anybody else. So we did that. And you know, what I know of Chaz is that he's a fighter. He's, he's hyper competitive. He has a background in professional sports. Like he is like this competitive guy. He's got this drive. So my thoughts going into that were, no no matter what, as long as there's a fighting chance, he wants the opportunity to fight. And then this guy, after, what, from eight to noon, so after all of these hours, after 16 straight hours of vomiting and not being able to stop and not being able to rest, which is crazy, 
we had this conversation and he was like, as long as there's a chance, I want to fight. And I was really blown away by that because after being that sick and feeling that horrible for that long, like, ugh. So they took him away and they put him on ECMO and the next time uh, I saw him was in the cardiac ICU. Um, I do actually remember that conversation too. Yeah. That's one of those things that like sticks out. Like I remember opening my eyes and you're like over top of me and you're like, we need to have a serious conversation. And I'm like, what? And you're like, you're about to go into surgery and have some life support put on. If things go bad, how do you want things to go? And I said, well, if there's any bit of a fighting chance, let me fight. And you said, but what if you come out brain dead? And I said, well, then I'm already dead. And you're like, okay. And then I don't remember anything else after that until Halloween. Yeah. Wow. That was yeah. your last memory, Chaz. That was my last memory until Halloween. Yeah. And then everything from there on out was for me, on my perspective, everything from there was these crazy hallucinating dreams, like just bonker dreams. I don't know what kind of drugs I was on, man, but wow. Those <laughs> crazy dreams. And they were very do you, do you vivid. Do you remember any of your dreams? Um, yeah, there was one where I, I, I think a lot of it, because there was a TV in my room that was always on. And I think whoever was in my room, there was watching the World Series was going on at that time and um, Sports Center and stuff like that was all going on. So like a lot of things in my dream, I think, you know, looking back at it, I think a lot of it was going on. Whatever was going on on the TV that's where my dreams were. Do you remember thinking that we had helicoptered you to a hospital in West Virginia? Yes. Because <laughs> you were yeah. sure that that happened. And I was yeah. like, that is, why would we take you from Johns Hopkins to anywhere? <laughs> right? right. Like, <laughs> so you don't remember any of the time that you were awake when you were in the ICU? No. no. And I remember, I remember hearing voices, like when people would come and visit me. I remember like you and my dad, whoever was there that day would say, Hey, so-and-so is here to see you. And they would say, you know, do you want? And I would, I don't know if I would go, mm-hmm, or if I would shake my head. I don't remember that how wasn't I, even in the I told you. Like you've already skipped like a couple, like at least a week ahead. Cause when you were visiting and chatting with people, cause you were extubated for a short amount of time when you were in the ICU and we were only allowed to have two visitors at a time. And it was only during hours and I couldn't stay with you, but you were yeah, making jokes to your friends who came and saw you. Uh, <laughs> Like in a yeah, I don't remember. which was great because we were like, ah, Chaz is back. He's good. And this was another thing where we thought everything like, okay, well, cause you were on ECMO and they let you be extubated and you were immobilized, you know, so that you couldn't pull your cannulas out so that ECMO was not at risk, but you, you know, you had the pacemaker and you were okay. And we would come in and visit you. And then, um, I got a call from one of the other fellows, Dan, Roberta, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I've gone. So at this point, we've been there. He has the surgery on Saturday. He's fine on Saturday. On Sunday, I, you know, I'm there in the morning. And then I decided, like, I haven't seen my daughter in forever. Like, I need to see my daughter. So I take her over to our friend's house who lives like three miles from the hospital. So we're having a play date. And this is the first time I have left unless I was not allowed to be there, like the two nights that we were in the ICU before. And I had to leave. I had taken Aurora, our three-year-old, over to our friend's house just so we could maybe have some semblance of normalcy. Because I feel bad because this poor little girl all of a sudden does not know what is going on. And we're there and they're playing. And all of a sudden, I get a call and it's Roberta who's like, like, hey, he's really struggling to breathe. 
now he's and he's he's not doing well. We're going to have to intubate him again, and we're going to medicate him so that he's able to rest. So they're going to put him now in a medically induced coma, essentially. And I wasn't expecting that because he was talking and making jokes, and we were talking about football. And our friend had flown in from Boston. She's an immunologist, and she was helping me kind of wrap my head around. She was essentially translating all the medical stuff to me and putting it in layman's terms for me because while the staff was able to do that, like they can't spend all day with me, and she could. And now she's flown back home and I am so confused because I thought he was getting better and now he's going back under and I'm not there. So if he doesn't wake up again, I wasn't there. His dad was, and his dad says that he was like, Oh, I can, I feel myself going guys. See ya. Bye. Like, and it freaked his dad out. That was the first time I really like let go because you got to kind of keep it together in some semblance. But then I was there and I remember our friend was took the kids and she was like, you guys, let's go downstairs and watch a show. And then she got them out of the room real fast. And then she just kind of walked back and put a box of tissues next to me. And then I just cried for like, you know, 45 minutes. And because I got I got upset and Roberta was great on the phone. She was like, this doesn't you know, this doesn't necessarily, like, this isn't that, this isn't a huge deal. He's not like, he's not dying right now. Like this is not, this just, he just needs more help. He needs more oxygen and we can't do that unless we do this. So that's why we have to do this. But it just, it seemed like another like step back. Julie, thanks for walking us through that. And, and you know, Roberta Florido is an incredible doctor. Can I take you back to when Chaz was first placed on ECMO, mm-hmm. Impella, had a temporary pacemaker. Mm-hmm. When you first walked back in the room and saw him, that's a lot of equipment. What did you see? What were you thinking? How did it feel from your perspective? I was warned. So my sister has five children and her fourth had to be intubated. And like he had a lot of equipment on him when he was a little tiny baby. He was in the NICU and had some major struggles for a few days. So she was like, I'm just going to warn you. It's a lot of, it's a lot of equipment. And you know, it was a lot of equipment, but what I noticed most was he didn't look like he was in pain. And that was the first time in almost a week, right? Because he had started with that headache on Monday and now we're on, we're at Saturday afternoon, evening. And it's the first time since Monday morning that he didn't look like he was in pain. So the equipment, you know, there was a lot of it and it's a little scary, but he didn't look like he was suffering at that moment. He looked like he was, like he was resting and, you know, they were going to keep him asleep that whole night. And, you know, I, I I was, I was okay with it because I knew he couldn't continue going on like he had been the night before. And it was real, honestly, it was a relief to see him not actively suffering because it's so hard to watch somebody you love go through so much pain and so much distress and there's nothing you can do. And you know that there are people who have the ability to do something and they are literally doing everything they can and everything they're doing is not working. That's really scary because you know we know like everybody knows Johns Hopkins like and again these these women like these nurses and then the the doctors everybody was amazing and they were literally doing I could see them putting so much effort into trying to help him and nothing they were doing was working so eventually they were just trying to help get him, get him through I, I think overnight there were a lot of conversations going on I think from talking um, to you Dan and to some of the other staff when we came back and visited the year later that decisions were being made overnight on like, what they were going to do and he so the nurses were just trying to make him as comfortable as possible which was barely it wasn't comfortable at all but there was nothing else they could do they were doing everything so I was just glad to see that he wasn't suffering and I knew he was going to have a good night and he had a great nurse that first night in the ICU who was like, because, you know, I wanted to stay. And he was like, look, 
There's not a, you know, you'd have to walk way out here to go to the bathroom. That's not like, that's an ideal for you. There's this, he was like, they, he was like and I got him. I'm going to take care of him. And he's not going to, he's not going to know, like, he's not going to know. And even if he did, like, he'll know that you wanted to. And you also have to take care of yourself. Look at you. And I was like, yeah, Roger that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would never get away with that. <laughs> well, you know, my, my, uh, my, my bed is a little more comfortable than the hospital cuts. A little bit. <laughs> this is post-op from the ECMO. He actually spent two nights in the cardiac surgery ICUs. Yeah, before he moved back over. Yeah. And then, and again, you know, he had those two, that one day where he was like alert and making jokes and was watching football on Sunday and it was great. And then the next day things kind of fell apart again. And eventually they moved him back over to the CCU um, where we were with you all again. And it was helping, but like, it's just his ejection fraction, as I recall, was so low that like, and it just wasn't getting better. And we were just, and then he started to have complications from the machines, like where he was just bleeding constantly. And eventually they just had to put a pad down. It was rough. Like, I have all these pictures. His body started to swell because his kidneys started to fail. There was something about the impella, like munching up red blood cells. So he was turning these ridiculous colors and he was so swollen and he was so sick and his feet started turning black and it just, and then his uh, cannulation sites started getting infected. So then we had all these new sets of doctors. We've got the infectious disease doctors coming in every day and he goes on dialysis. So now we've got the dialysis machine. So he's on continuous dialysis. There's like the kidney team who's coming to see him. And then you guys are coming to see him again. And he was just getting worse and worse and worse. When they had put him back under, they put him back on an external pacemaker. And there was this point, his uncle had flown in from the Carolinas and we were all just standing around just watching it. And like, he could barely, he could barely hear us, right? Like occasionally we could communicate with him and they would kind of lighten the sedation, you know, because they've got to make sure that his brain is still functioning, right? Because the most important organ of all that makes Chaz Chaz is his brain. So they would check and then we could communicate with him a little bit. We made a letter board so he could communicate things Mm -hmm. with us. He would write letters on our palms. A couple times I had to tell him what was happening when he would wake up and I learned what not to say, but that it was okay because mm. he would forget and I'd have to tell him again. There were several times where he was trying to communicate like, let's go home or like he didn't know where he was or what happened. And I would think that he did because we had gone over it the day, the last time he woke up, but he had no memory of it. So I had to t- tell him several times what was happening and I got better at telling him what was happening because like there were, I don't remember how I did it wrong, but there was one time where his eyes got huge and I was like, no, but you're okay. You're not going to die. You're all right. Like, whoa. Cause you could tell whatever I said, just really, it was, the, it was the wrong choice, whatever it was. But I got better at being like, Hey, do you remember what happened? And he'd shake his head. No. And I'd be like, okay, so you're in the hospital. You did not have an accident. You got sick. Your body's immune system went into overdrive to try to make you better and it affected your heart. So you're on a bunch of life support machines right now, but you're okay right now. We're trying to get you better, you know, so, and he could process it and he could understand, but he'd forget again and I'd have to tell him again. And Julie, let me ask you, you know, you're saying that you were trying to keep him informed, but keep him positive. But what about you? You at the time, you have a young child, you have a second one on the way, and Chaz's health is spiraling. How did you stay positive or optimistic? And how did you keep your hope up? And were there times where maybe you didn't have as much hope for what was going to happen? What's interesting is once he did start to get better, a lot of us, because none of us discussed 
like the contingency plans out loud because we didn't want to say it out loud because we're being positive, right? But like, you're not human if you're not thinking in the back of your head, how am I going to do this? There was a point when his ejection fraction was really, really low. I remember going to my OB's office because I had been stressed. Like I had a bunch of friends that that first week that he was in the hospital and things just kept, you know, oh, we think it's getting better and now it's worse. We think it's getting better and now it's worse. They were like, I really think you need to call your OB and just go get checked out because this is a lot of stress and it would make all of us feel better. And I think you should just do it so you know you're okay. And I was like, okay. And I remember giving some of the information to my OB who was like, and his face, like he couldn't mask it, right? When he was like, what's happening? And I told him everything that I knew and he was like, okay. He was like, you need to take care of yourself. That is very important you know, for more reasons than I can express right now. And like, it was very serious. And I mean, in my head, I was trying to think, how am I like, how am I going to raise, how am I going to raise these kids? Like my stepdaughter was 10. And like, so she'll remember him, but she needs him. Like she's still a kid. My daughter was three. She wouldn't remember him. If he had died, she would like, she wouldn't have remembered him. And they have a really special relationship. The two of them together, like they're both very mischievous personalities and their relationship was beautiful then. It's beautiful now. But like the idea that she wasn't going to have that, like, how can I be that for her? Because I'm not him, right? I'm only me. And yeah. and then the idea that he would never meet his son, that's a really tough scenario to wrap your mind around. So I, I allowed myself to think about that a little bit, but I had met a very inspiring person earlier that same year. I had met this wonderful woman. I was doing some mini sessions for a local organization that works with parents of multiples. And she had shared with me that, you know, she was coming with her with her twins and then her younger daughter. Um, and unfortunately, her husband had passed away a year ago. Oh, gosh. Um, so there's this woman who had three, you know, like two five-year-olds and a two-year-old, which is a lot as, as a person who has one five-year-old and one two-year-old in my house right now, that's a lot, that's a lot of, of a lot going on right there. So she had like these two and she was just so patient and so graceful and just such a lovely person. And I still know her today. Um, and I, I, I could look and see, I've, I know somebody who has been able to do this, who has been able to overcome this. So worst case scenario will be okay because I'll make sure we're okay. Right. And we've got this great support system. And then it was hard with the kids because so Emily's mother, um, Chaz's ex-wife, had lost her father when she was 10. So it was really hard for her because she does not want her daughter to have that same experience that she did. So she and I talked every day. We cried a lot on the phone together. I would call a few people and then I would do kind of a Facebook update for everybody else during the day because I like there's only so many people I can call and I do not want to have to give, give the same information, the same bad information over and over again. But she's one person I would call. So we're trying to make sure that Emily's okay. And Emily never asked the hard question. She's a very smart kid and would always say, do you have any questions for me? She never asked, is daddy going to die? She knew she could ask it. She didn't want to ask it. She just decided to trust us that we were going to keep her informed. So she made a choice not to ask that question. And then one day when he was really not doing well, and I was really thinking he's not going to make it because at that point, like the odds were he wasn't. And we had had a conversation. Uh, my mom had flown in and we were there. Um, this was right before he got moved back to the CCU. The attending there said, has anybody had a conversation with you about how sick he is? And I was like, I mean, Yes. I was like, I mean, I, I know that this is serious. I know there's a mortality rate. And he was like, yes, there's, there's a real one. He was like, and it's not a chance that any of us would take. I just want, I just want you to know, you, you just need to be aware. And I was like, I am. Thank you. But like, it's hard, it's hard to hear that. And then I decided to take a day off from hospital 
And I decided to take my daughter on her pumpkin patch trip with her preschool because it was, I was like, well, I want us to have a normal day. So we had the normal day. And then I was spending the night at home this that night and Chaz's dad was staying up in the hospital with him. And I was tucking my daughter into bed. We'd gone to the pumpkin patch. We picked out pumpkins. We did all this stuff. And I was trying to keep it together. And her teachers were really lovely and everybody knew what was going on. And they were trying to support us and support her. And I was tucking her into bed and she said, mommy, is daddy going to be sick forever? Hmm. And I stopped and I heard my mom who was in the next room who heard it. I heard my mom kind of gasp a little bit and, and hold her breath because like, that's the question. Right. And I took a minute and I was like, no, he's not going to be sick forever. You know, he's, he's either going to get better or he won't, but you know, either way, you know, you're going to be okay. I'm okay. And we've got each other. And because I didn't, I didn't want to lie. Right. I didn't want to say he's going to be okay. Cause I didn't know, but I do know that he's not going to be sick forever. He's either going to get better. Or he's going to die. And we're going to know that probably within a month. Right. So I, I just, I did my best, which is, I guess all really of us, any of us can do. And I think as far as staying positive to get back to your original question that you asked like 50 years ago, this is what I learned. Cause if you had asked me how I would handle this, you know, four years ago before I had to handle it, it'd be like, Oh man, I'd be a mess. But when you have to deal with it, when it's reality, I think your spirit just kind of does what it has to do. Like it rises to the occasion and you do what needs to be done. You're capable of more than you're capable of. So I stayed positive because I thought that was in the best interest of myself and of my kid and of everybody who loves Chaz. And I decided to put my faith in the people who do this for a living and who had shown me that they cared about him and that they cared how his story was going to end. I mean, you know, that's what I did. And it was very, very helpful to have such a huge support network. We had so many people, like people were praying. I had somebody I don't even know who happened to have a gift card to the Hopkins cafeteria. She's a friend of a friend who heard about it. And then she happens to be in that area. She came to the hospital, dropped off an envelope for me with this gift card so that I could get paid for food from the cafeteria. People made sure that my family was taken care of. I had my mom fly in to take care of my daughter so I could stay at the hospital. My best friend from high school flew in to take care of my daughter. My sister flew in with a seven-week-old baby to take care of my daughter. We had a lot of help. We had a lot of people on our side, which is, I think, also really helpful. So if I needed to take the moments to kind of be a mess, I could be a mess. And then village rose to the occasion. Yeah. Everybody rose to yeah. the occasion because that's all you can do. And uh, I, I really was witness to that. And Ahmed, Heather, and I really, we all know the power of family and the power of advocacy at the bedside with our patients when we watch their families come in. Um, it's just so fortunate. And I got to know your parents really well. And there were some times that were very sweet times where we would just talk about other things. When Chaz's uncle had flown up, it was when Chaz was still on his, the second time he was on a pacemaker and we were all just standing around while he was unconscious at one point, just watching because you could see on the monitor that the pacemaker was firing with every beat of his heart. His heart was not beating without that stimulation at all. And then he stayed in his hotel and uh, Chaz's father and I went back home to sleep at home that night. And as we were driving in the next morning, we get this text from Chaz's uncle, Matt, and he's like, the pacemaker. It's not, I don't see it firing on the monitor. It's not going up at like maybe once every two or three minutes. Like it's not doing what it was doing yesterday. Something's happening. And I was like, what is going on? We got there and the nurse who was his nurse that night was like, right around 2am, his heart just started to pick up some of the weight on its own. It just started to do the work again. 
She's like, yeah, the pacemaker's barely been used. And yesterday it was used for almost every beat of his heart. And we were just like, like we, that's as far as we're concerned. You know, when I was talking to his uncle later, after his uncle had flown back to the Carolinas, that next day I was texting with him and I still have it saved in my phone where he's like, we, we witnessed a miracle. It, it, his heart just started working again. Like, so that's our miracle moment that it just, and you guys knew the whole time, but of course, you know, you were telling us, but we didn't have like the experience that you have to know that like his, like his, what we were being told is his heart just needs like all this pressure taken off so it can rest and recuperate and then start to take on its work in its own time. And it was just, it was taking so long and it just didn't seem like it would ever happen. And then literally overnight it started to get better. And then it just kept getting better. But my uncle still to this day will be like, Hey, like you will never understand how much that P wave changed my life. <laughs> As I changed your life, changed my life. <laughs> Well, it was really cool because you could, it's so interesting to see on a monitor, like to see something where you can see it where, and then you're like, wait, it's not relying on this machine anymore. Like, I don't, I don't understand. And that is from that point on is when they, when you started to lose devices, whereas up to that point, you start, Chaz, you started to like, you were on one device and then you're on two devices and then, okay, well now we got to put the pacemaker back on. Okay. Well now we've got to, now you're on dialysis too. Oh, well now we've got to do, like, it was just so much. You just kept getting devices and then you started losing them. You like, I remember they, cause it's like that screw and they unscrewed it from your neck and then you got the impella out. And from that point on, you just started getting better and better and better. And then look at you now, kid. I know, right? <laughs> so Chaz, uh, jumping forward to when you woke up, what was the first thing that you remember after you had been cannulated with ECMO and intubated and all that? Oh man, let's think back. I mean, I think when I was extubated, it was more of a relief because there was some times before that leading up to it where there was a lot of discussion. I remember Dr. Chadi talking to me like, hey, we're going to try to get you out today. We're going to try to get it out today. We're going to try to get And so it felt like that day lasted three days. You know what I mean? Um, it was just like so long and my eyes were glued on, like for where my eyes were and how I was laying, I was always staring at the clock. So it felt like I was constantly watching the clock and waiting to be extubated. It was like, a, it was so exciting. Um, and then finally it was done. And then I remember a little bit about the kids coming in and, and trick or treating. I remember my nephew coming in and saying that I look like the Hulk because I was all green. So and like that. Uncle Chaz, you look like the Hulk. <laughs> I mean, he really did because he was holding on to so much excess fluid. Like he was, he was swollen and he had like a very green tint to his skin. So he, I mean, it was very Halloween appropriate. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then the next day is when I started rehab on November 1st. And that morning of November 1st, I started speech therapy and and swallowing and trying to eat normal foods. They started with like applesauce and 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 stuff like that to try to get me in, in water out of a straw and trying to get my you know trying to get my muscles to work again to be able to take down actual food rather than through a feeding tube. So I remember that, and then I remember the first time they tried to get me out of the bed and sit me up. It felt like an eternity to try to just to get me to sit up on the edge of the bed. I had like no core strength anymore. Everything was gone. And then when the physical therapist actually stood me up onto my feet and I had, I had one therapist under one arm and another therapist under another arm and my legs felt like spaghetti. Like I couldn't tell if my toes were touching the ground. I had like no feeling in my feet. I looked down and I, you know, all I could see is my legs going back and forth, like 
like like lip noodles and it kind of freaked me out and i think that's what got my my heart rate going and everything like that and i think they had me up for maybe i don't know five to ten seconds and i was like gotta put me down gotta put me down and they put me back in the bed and that was that was it for the day and we did that for a week and a half of just practicing to get on the edge of the bed and i dreaded it every day on top of that with the dialysis and being hooked up to everything and trying to manipulate my PT around cords going everywhere, but fought through it and the muscles have memory and eventually they did what they were supposed to do. And, oh man, it was like uh, every day a physical therapist come in and I'm like, and I come with a sports background. I used to, I have a sports medicine background. So I used to be that person to motivate my athletes to try to do their rehab and get better and get stronger. And then the tables were flipped. Um, and now I'm the patient and having to hear the whole, like, Hey, you got to do this when I'm not around. You got to do these exercises when I am around, we got to do this. And I'm like, Oh man, but I had to muscle through it because I, I needed to get out of that hospital. I needed to get better to show my friends and family that I was on the uprise and to be able to be there for Julie when Charlie was ready to come, you know? So that whole time from being from Halloween until the time that I was discharged, it was just constant exercising and pushing myself. And I'm a huge Rocky fan, um, and so I used <laughs> a lot of the I used a lot of the Rocky soundtrack music to keep me motivated during the uh, during my rehab sessions with my PT. So for that half hour to an hour that we were spending together, like Julie's couple, either Julie or my dad, whoever was there that day, like they held the phone and blasted the music and. I'm sure they probably heard us all down the hallway and everything, but I didn't care to just try to muscle through whatever we were doing that day, find that little bit of energy to get me through. Well, first of all, this is a, a nice time to thank and honor all of the rehab specialists that do such an yeah. amazing job in the hospital of physical therapists, occupational therapists, and speech therapists. Oh, but absolutely. You, yep. you said that by this time you were on dialysis. Was your impression that you were going to be committed to dialysis and did you yeah. accept that that might become a normal part of your life moving forward? Yeah, yes and no. When I started to actually like eliminate urine, like uh. I felt like my kidneys were going in the right direction. It was just, it was like every day there was like one particular thing that they were. Because we like all had like a pee, a pee party. A, celebra right? a celebration. A pee party. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we were so excited, right? Because, so, because that's. Uh, that is like how you know that the kidneys are starting to work again because he hadn't been able to urinate in such a long time. Like that when he could, I was so like, we were so pumped about it. Then I remember my sister was uh, here at home and I, they got a text and a, a good friend of ours, Josh had come over to drop off food to, you know, feed the people. So we didn't have to worry about it. And I guess he was holding her baby that she had brought with her. And then everybody was like, he peed, he peed. And then everybody was like dancing around and every, and, and, this poor guy is just like, <laughs> what is going on? They were like, oh, it means starting. <laughs> oh, okay. Whoa. So I remember to take for granted, right? So when I was, so when I got out of ICU and they put me to step down into the PCCU, they had taken me off a of constant dialysis and I was on intermittent dialysis. So I would go maybe down to dialysis maybe two to three times a week, and I absolutely hated it because it wore me. It just wore me out sitting through there for three hours, getting your blood taken out, refiltered, put back in. I hated it. I would get cold. I would get chills. I would get tired. And when I came back, my limbs felt like they weighed like cinder blocks. 
Like they were just heavy. And I was like, okay, they would say, Hey, you got to go dialysis today. And I'm like, okay, well bring PT into me now because I'm going to be useless when I'm done with dialysis. I'm going to be done for the day. There's no way I'm going to be able to do PT or OT after dialysis. Like, just let me sleep. And every day they would come in and they would read, they would look at my blood work and there was a specific thing that they were looking for. And it, and it was always elevated. The creatinine, creatinine, that's what it was. The creatinine, it was always elevated. So they would do dialysis to reset it. And then it would, a couple of days it would go up and they would keep monitoring it. And then we got to a point, a certain point, dialysis again. And it started getting less and less. And I felt like the last probably three weeks at the hospital, I was no longer a cardiac patient. I was more a renal patient. I was basically a hostage to my kidneys because there was times where it looked really good to the doctors and they were like, oh, okay, great. Like, let's let, we can discharge him to inpatient PT. And then they were like, no, like he, he would still, we don't have a, we don't, there's no clear cut dialysis plan that we can give to inpatient PT. Do we know that he needs it once a week, twice a week, three times a week? every day. Like they couldn't determine what type of a prescription that they needed for me in an or an outpatient uh, facility. Yeah. And so, until they knew that they wouldn't let you leave. They wouldn't let me they leave. Were like, let and, me out. And, and then, and then they were like, okay, well let's send you to an outpatient rehab facility. And because I was no longer based off of where I was in PT, I was no longer a candidate for inpatient PT. So then there was that thing where like the longer that I stayed because of my, my kidneys, the more I was progressing with my PT, the less I was a candidate to go to where they wanted me to send. <laughs> so then at the point, and so then, you know, that, that first week of December, like they were, they, I was like, how do I get out of here? And they're like, if you can go three days with your creatinine levels being below 5.0, we'll discharge you to send you home. And I was like, okay, cool. And then we did three days in a row. And that's that third day, that morning, they, the doctors came in and they told me that it was like that. It was like a celebration. And then the cardiac doctors were like, um, what are you talking about? You're not going home. And I'm like, uh, the renal team told me that if I did this for three straight days, I'd go home. So then it was like a big confusion. I'm like, no, you cannot take this from me. I've got to go home. <laughs> so, so, um, so yeah, so that whole like three weeks before I turned more into a renal patient than a cardiac patient, but I knew that my kidneys were going to come back just based off of like how much urine I was actually like eliminating on a daily basis because it was more and it was more and it was more. The one thing that I, we were getting frustrated with was the wound care from my my cantillation sites. Yeah, it was really, I mean, okay, so you were annoyed with it. I was fascinated by it. Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm one of those people who thinks that that stuff is really interesting. So there were like, she, Amanda, who was the wound care nurse would always be like, you want to watch? And I was like, do I? And, you know, cause, and Chaz would get really annoyed, but uh, yeah, the, the patient sites, like they just wouldn't close, I guess. And please, please everyone with a medical degree, correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess, you know, the body is kind of healing from the inside out. Right. So like, it's not, devoting the resources to heal to closing the wounds and healing the skin when it needs to take care of the heart and the kidneys and when he had pneumonia and when he like it was like we're not worried about that right now so they were trying to at the point where he was getting better they were trying to get those wounds to close or at least get sufficiently closed enough so that i could do wound care for him at home because they were really really um serious and deep wounds that would not heal she had to come in and clean them out do you remember um so dan remembers this so i had like after we got discharged and we counted, 
I had 54 blood transfusions in the entire time oh I was at the gosh. hospital. Yeah. 54. So it was like, and I was in the hospital for 54 days. So it was like an average of one a day, but the majority of them were in the month of October. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, so I do remember being a PCCU and those were the nurses that I actually got the closest with because I don't remember a lot of the nurses in I, in the ICU. I remember Amy, he, she would come in every morning and do my, my blood work. There was a night nurse named Adam that I came really attached to. Uh, him and I were really close um, at, at, during the evening uh, shifts. That, those were about the only two nurses that I really, really, really remember from ICU. So when I was at PCCU, I couldn't sleep at night. So like those night nurses, like we they come in and we'd have conversations and I became really close to those, those that group. And I remember one of the times where I was having a rough time after dialysis and they were like, Hey, let's give you a blood transfusion. And I'm like, okay, good. Like, like that would probably make me feel a little better. And Beth, God love her. She was like one of the first people, it was like one of the first times she had like been on my case. I remember her like hooking it up and she asked me, have you ever had a blood transfusion before? <laughs> and the entire room just lost it and started laughing. And God love her. Like we didn't want to like, we didn't want to feel like we were laughing in her face, but it was like so funny. We're like, Oh, Yes, I've had a blood transfusion before. We've had plenty. So that was a a memorable time. But yeah, the nurses in the PCCU, like, fantastic. I mean, they were one of the first people that I I wanted to visit when we came back in that May during Nurses Week. They were the first people that we, well, other than Dan intercepting it when we got off the elevator, we saw him just randomly. um, That was very fortuitous. You can't escape. Not that you would want to. We've tried. We've tried. I I will say that this is such a you know the way you speak. You're speaking about and remembering the nurses who took care of you is so special. And uh, just a reminder that this is Nursing Week right now. So uh, happy Nursing Week! Oh, is it really? It is. It is. That's right. It's May. That's right. It's um, week of May. It commemorates uh, Florence Nightingale's birthday on May 12th, but this is all Nursing Week, so uh, this is very this special. Is, and this is about the time. I'm surprised we didn't get it pop up on our Facebook like time hop or whatever, because this is about the time. This is the week that we came up. It was Nurses Week to we come up and a, see we everybody. Ton, well, I forget week. I baked a ton of cookies, and we brought the baby, and we were like, "Thank you for saving his life. Have cookies." And I and I showed up without my cane, and you know. Because, you know, I, you know, I had to learn how to walk all over again. So, you know, a lot of those guys remembered me either with a walker or with a cane and with this long beard, bushy beard. And so, you know, I go home and I do my rehab. And of course, another factor that I an obstacle I had to overcome was my left wrist wouldn't work the entire time I was in the hospital. I didn't get my left wrist back until probably March of 2018. Even then, if you were holding I, I, anything wow. heavy, it would collapse on you. Yeah, anything I would grab. If I if I grabbed a Coke can, either whether it was half half full, almost empty, like if I grabbed it and squeezed, my wrist would just flex and just collapse. Can you walk us through what it was like, really, to go back home and to be discharged? Oh, man. It was so weird because I didn't want to take off normal clothes when I got into the hospital, right? They wanted to put me in that hospital gown, right? And then when I when I was leaving the hospital, I'd gotten so used to just being in a row, in a gown and I had all these like, you know, wound sites and stuff. And then my dad's like, hey, you want to put on normal clothes? And I'm like, no, I, I really don't. Like, I don't know what it's going to feel like on my like my bandages and stuff like that. Like, is it going to be comfortable or do I just stay with this? And he's like, well, you can't leave the hospital like 
pretty much naked in, in hospital gowns. So you got to put something on. So he, you know, he helped me get like some sweatpants on that were like loose fitting around the waist and then baggy and not, you know, constricting and a t-shirt and wearing the t-shirt actually was really nice to have and not being hooked up on anything anymore. That was nice to be free. And then just the ride home and just being outside. There was a point where I had gone 49 days without feeling the outside air. Wow. 49. Wow. And, I, and I got discharged at 54 days. So it, on day 49 was the day that they allowed me to go outside in a wheelchair just to get the fresh air. And it was December. And I was like, I don't care. Put a, put a hat on me, put a blanket around me. I don't care. I want to breathe the Baltimore air, even though it's part <laughs> of the most air to breathe. But it, it, it was like, I just got to get outside at 49 days without feeling the outside air, without breathing the outside air. So it was nice to finally be outside in a car, driving home with my dad, just him and I, and seeing, you know, civilization outside of a hospital again. And then getting home, Aurora sitting at the window, we got a video, Julie got a video from the inside perspective of the house as we pulled into the driveway. And just to have her running outside and greeting me Daddy. and helping me inside. And I was still in my walker at that time. So I hadn't, I wasn't quite ready for the cane yet, but I had my walker and they helped me inside to the, inside to the house. Everybody greeted me and then got to sleep in my own bed that night. And it was just, it was just amazing. Just a fantastic feeling. Like you never knew how much you missed your bed in your own house. And, and I'm a neat freak and I didn't even care if like there was toys on the floor or the house was unorganized or there was dishes in the sink. Like I didn't even care that night. I was like, I'm, I'm home. Let me sit on my couch for a little bit, prop my feet up in a recliner, watch my big screen television and just enjoy being with the family um, in my own home. That was. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, you know, Chaz and Julie, this, this experience, I don't even know what the right adjective is. You know, this thing that you both went through, has it in any way impacted the way you live your life or uh, your approach to life or approach to others? Um, for me, it did for a little bit. And then I got into my old ways. But, you know, Julie will call me out on it or my parents will call me out on it every now and then and be like, hey, you need to slow down and take a little, take, take a step back and think about how lucky you are. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're right. So it, it's definitely changed. I think Julie and my family, you know, I wasn't conscious to know what they actually went through. And unless, you know, we talk about stories like this and we're sitting around the campfire or fire pit or whatever like that. And, and telling stories like I really don't understand what they went through, nor do they can see what I went through. And there was actually talks when I was in the hospital I was like, you know, with Julie's artistic background, I was like, man, why don't we write a book? Like write a book about like my perspective versus your perspective versus family's perspective and write a book about this. And like, we've just never had a, a way to start it. For me, I, what I said, he says, I call him out on it. Usually what I say is like, I would hate to think that we went through something this extreme and this profound and this hard and came out on the other side, not having learned something. So I try to not stress the small stuff and to remember, because right, it's so easy, like in everyday life, especially as parents, <laughs> kids can be kind of crazy. And it's like, so especially right now, for example, like, right, nobody can leave. There's no school. Chaz has to work from home. I had to cancel all of my photography clients because it's not safe for me to get up close and personal with people right now. But so, and it can be very frustrating, but it gives, but it's given me this great perspective. Like, 
but at least things I could have, be a lot worse. I have these people because there was a time that I didn't have him here, okay. and and it was horrible. So like, I don't think I get as annoyed with little stuff as much anymore. And I think I have gained an ability to kind of take a deep breath, step back, and get some perspective because I've had this bigger view and I know what it feels like. And I think I don't I don't think I was not I was an unkind person before, but it's made me more likely to reach out when I see that other people are struggling because I know how good it felt. You know, because not that I wouldn't want to reach out before, right? because but like you know sometimes if somebody you know is going through a hard time like you don't want to bother them um but it yeah. bothered me it actually felt really lovely even when i could not couldn't there was a time where i could not answer facebook messages i could not answer texts because i i was too overwhelmed with so much information coming in but every single one of those reach outs meant something and it kind of you know when people give you that love when you're in a really low place it honestly lifts you up over the next obstacle and gets you through so it taught me that so i am now the person who wants to reach out and say something or an offer words of encouragement, like I want to do as much good as I can knowing what like pay it forward, I guess. Yeah, that's such a powerful sentiment. And you guys have so much wisdom to share. How did you practically like debrief after all this with your children? I'll answer that one. I relied a lot on Julie explaining it to them because she had a more of a perspective of what actually happened than than I did. Uh, to tell them like, hey, this is what happened when I don't even really remember what happened. So- I would say that Hopkins has child life specialists. And when Chaz was in the hospital and still doing rather poorly, it was suggested that maybe I would want to have a conversation with one of them. So I did. And I had a conversation when Chaz's ex-wife could come up because we both have children who, right? Like we share this experience, like our children's father is in a hospital and we don't know how this is going to go and how do we work this out with our kids. And then the child life specialist came in and she talked to us about ways that we could talk about preparing them for going to visit him for the first time in the room with all the equipment by showing them pictures of the equipment and how to explain it to help explain it to Aurora. You know, Charlie wasn't born yet. And Emily was old enough to talk to some of the stuff with her mom and with me too. And I made sure as far as when he was sick, I made sure that I still kept our weekends with Emily because I didn't want it to be, you know, there's joint custody and she would, she comes up for half the summer and then every other weekend. And I didn't want it to be, Oh, daddy's sick. So now you have, now you don't get to see your your sibling. That's not okay. Right. So I would still make sure that even if I wasn't here because I was in the hospital, whoever was here had Emily. So she still got that time and she still knew she was a really important, like key member of our family, no matter who's sick or what's happening, like she matters. So there was that. And then there was a, there's a great book called The Invisible String that talks about how everybody is connected to each other with strings made of love. So anyone you love, you're always connected to, even if you're in different places, whether that place be in, you know, you're at school and I'm at home or daddy's in the hospital and you're at home or if somebody, you know, passes away, like you're still connected by that love. And that was a huge help in explaining to Aurora, you know, the concept that everybody that you love is with you no matter what, even if you're not together all the time. And then as far as kind of debriefing when things got back to normal, I've always taken the path of being as honest as possible. So what questions do you have? Okay, well, he was sick and this is what happened. He got sick and then his body was trying to fight the bad guys and it missed and it accidentally hit his heart, you know? So we we talk about that and daddy kept fighting and kept fighting like a superhero. So we have like a book now called Superhero Dad and, um, and a friend of mine, got me this great little chart that they usually use for children who are sick, where you put a picture of, you know, the person there's like this little, it's like, it looks like a game and you can move it along the chart. And like the final destination is getting to come home and getting better. So as Chaz would 
go through milestones. He's off of ECMO, so we move him up to here. Oh, he moved to the other unit. He's over here. Oh, he learned how to walk. We move him up here till his game piece got home, and then he's home. So that is, uh, that's how we explained it to the kids. We still have it up. Yeah, we still, I still have it. Actually, it fell off the wall the other day, but I still have it out because I have to put it back up. Guys, this was uh, a really really special episode to for us to do. Um, it really is one. From my perspective, the non-medical perspective, I remember when you came in and you just had so much nausea and uh, you just were so uncomfortable. And I remember being at the bedside, just like knowing that the medicines that we were using just wasn't going to cut it. And I just saw you in really extremis of nausea and shortness of breath. And that was my first impression of you. And then uh, like, you know, it's almost like you, like you're in, you're in ECMO land and you're out and you're in and out. And by the way, the drug is ketamine. That's why you had those hallucinations. But, uh. you know, <laughs> And I had gotten to know Julie and your family and your kids even as I was at your bedside every day trying to tinker and optimize the situation. And then um, I remember the moments when we realized that we would have to reintubate you and we still hadn't had that chat. And, and it's funny, like I spent so much time at your bedside and I had no idea what you thought of me. I was like teaching everybody about the ECMO circuit and doing rounds every day. And I had no idea if you were like, oh my God, this is an annoying guy. Won't he just shut up? And then uh, <laughs> finally, you know, Finally, you got extubated that final time and you just looked at me and you're like, you're the man. And I was like, whoa, I just I was totally overwhelmed. And it really is thematic how you think about all the nurses and PT and and, and even the, the custodians and just everybody in the hospital. It's just very touching. And I just worked with Amy and Adam the other night in the COVID ICU. We're actually doing an ECMO unit there and they have the same level of devotion and care to the patients that we have there. And they also remember you very clearly. In fact, we all do. And then when I saw you... Um, you know, that elevator open, you had a bunch of cookies. It happened to be, I was in a very big weight gain state right then. So I declined, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, it just was very memorable. And the fact that you even remembered my name made the difference. And I'm, I'm actually looking right now on my desk. I have all your holiday cards that you send every year. So this really is a, a great privilege for us. And I, I'm kind of almost speechless, which I'm usually not at this point. <laughs> you and Dr. Chadi were, were the one, the two doctors that were influential to in my mind. And my mom still talks about the two of you, about Dr. Dan and Dr. Chadi and how they would come in. And my mom would look you guys right in the eye and be like, don't lie to me. What's going on? She she still tells that story, and it's it's pretty cool that like you know everybody remembers Dr. Dan, everybody remembers Dr. Chadi, and Dr. Dan. I um I interrupted Chaz earlier when he was telling a phenomenal story about what I think is my favorite memory about your time with us um, when you brought the video in. So you might want to let him tell that again because it's a phenomenal story. Um, Yeah, I remember I remember being wheeled around. I, I don't remember where if I was being wheeled into the room or out of the room, but I remember I was being wheeled somewhere, and you were like right next to me walking with the bed and you were showing me on your laptop on your your computer of like this was your heart when you came in and this is what it looks like now so you're getting better and i remember that conversation and i remember seeing the heart on the left where you pointed that this was what it looked like when it came when i came in and i i remember it looked like a mouse heart it like it would look like it not even beating it was like a little bit a little bit of time. And I was like, whoa. And then to see what it looked like, you know, at that point and the improvement that it was having. But I don't remember the time frame of where 
I was in the recovery stage of that, but I remember that conversation. And then Dan disappears for like several weeks, and we're like, "Where'd Doctor Dan go?" Off the youth, <laughs> like on the rotation. Yeah, he went. He like went off the grid. I'm like, oh, I thought he's not. Impo- I guess I'm not important to him anymore. And then he shows up oh, like, no. a couple weeks later. Then he shows up just in my PCCU room. Like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> that day that you walked in with your like ipad or laptop and you were like mr miller this is what your heart looked like what like two weeks ago or last week or whatever and then you were like this is it today and you could see his heart was beating it was like uh, it still kind of takes my breath away like it's just it's incredible well uh that recovery was all you we just uh nursed you along you're the one who made your (laughs) own heart better (laughs) because we didn't give you any medicine that made it better in the end I, I, just, say, I, I wish I could take, I wish I could remember that and take the credit for it, but I do not remember that. Yeah, I'll say that you two are so eloquent and have so much to share that I would definitely read that book. Guys, thank you so much. Your time is so important and precious. And this was just phenomenal and entertaining. And also just reliving everything was was wild. So thanks for coming on the show and really being so generous with your story and time. Thank you for giving us the opportunity. Um, Just like we know that we owe so much to like the medical community that's in our personal community. Like there's these like these, right? It takes a village, right? And it took two really to save Chaz and give him like, because he's lived this beautiful life since then. Like, and He had lived a good life up until that point, but all the things that have happened since our village supported us to get, you know, myself and Chaz's parents and all of us through the time and you supported Chaz and helped his body and his heart get the rest that it needed to repair. He got to meet his son. He's gotten to see his daughter turn into a teenager, which is its own special Mm -hmm. adventure. Um, We got, we went to Disney World last, uh, last year for our daughter's fifth birthday. Chaz turns 40 in two days. And we didn't know that he would make it past 37. He, this year, he's not going to toot his own horn, but I will toot it for him. He just won um, sales rep of the year for his company for 2019. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. That's funny. He's getting to do all of these things that he that he wouldn't have gotten to do otherwise. Like, and he, and his physical recovery is remarkable and none of that would be possible without people like you. It's so important to, I think, acknowledge. And we will be forever grateful for all the doctors, all the nurses and the incomplete staff and team that Mm -hmm. helped nurse me and get me the proper treatment to be able to be here today and do all these great things that Julie just stated. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and a very special thanks to Chaz and Julie for taking us through their perspective of such an arduous time, the emotional roller coaster, the uncertainties, and the impact their providers had on them. This was truly eye-opening. We take care of patients all the time, but to get a taste of their raw experience is such a unique privilege. We dedicate this episode to the patients that give meaning to our work, as well as the village that makes it all possible. From the doctors, NPs, PAs, nurses, therapists, janitors, and everyone else working hard to make the magic happen every day. And now we are honored to share some additional messages for the Millers from some of the healthcare heroes who partook in their care. From Dr. Dan Choi. Dear Millers, I'm so glad you guys are doing well. I wish you all of you many more blessings to come. Although you may think that we're the healers and you are the beneficiary in this doctor-patient or nurse-patient relationship, but in many ways, those of us who are fortunate enough to have had a part in your journey 
are also lucky in being able to gain a tremendous sense of accomplishment and satisfaction in knowing that what we do can and does make a difference. Your graciousness in sharing your story with the world and the heart to include us uh, is truly amazing. Thank you very much for always thinking of us. Be well. Bye-bye. From Alyssa Noonan. Hey, this is Alyssa. I'm so happy to hear that Chaz and Julie are doing well. They truly are such wonderful people. I remember when Chaz was brought back to the CCU, Julie had asked, can I just hug you? And I remember just crying. It's patients and families and stories like Chaz's that really just stick with you throughout your career. From Megan Van Name. I'll always remember Chaz when he came in the first night that he got airlifted to us and looking at him and realizing how truly sick he was, that ECMO was not the only thing that he needed. He needed even more than ECMO and all of us knew it. And to see him struggle for so many weeks, you would come in one day for your shift and expect him to be doing better and he'd be doing worse. And then the next day you'd come in expecting me doing worse and he'd be better. And he just was surprised us his whole course. It's an honor to be a nurse to say that I can take care of someone like him who had the resiliency to make it through. His wife is more than a rock star and she was incredible throughout the whole process and I'll always remember her resiliency as well. My last favorite memory of their family was Halloween when their young daughter didn't get to go trick-or-treating so we brought trick-or-treating to Chaz so she came in with her costume and it was her first time seeing him since he had been sick and all of us nurses dressed up and we gave her candy throughout the hallway and trick-or-treated with her and just to see her her smiling face in the midst of all that was going on that's what got us through so Chaz will always remember you and your entire family especially you Julie. 